Hey everyone, it's your host of Vital Discussions, Derek Wolf. I think you're really going to enjoy today's guest, Dr. Gabriel Felix. He is an awesome psychiatry resident at Harvard. We talked about the circulating hashtag, Black in the Ivory, Black Mental Health, his advocacy as a physician, and much more. As always, please rate, subscribe, and follow on Apple and Spotify. I can't stress that enough. And now, without further ado, Dr. Gabriel Felix. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So I kind of want to get started just talking about you know, who you are. Um, so um, tell us a little bit about yourself. We can just start with young Dr. Felix. Um, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Okay. Uh, yes, I'm Dr. Gabriel Felix. Uh, my hometown is Rockland County in New York. Uh, went to college at Binghamton University in upstate New York. Uh, graduate of Howard uh, University College of Medicine, and I'm currently a psychiatry resident at Cambridge Health Alliance, uh, which is one of Harvard Medical School's teaching hospitals. Great. Um, so you said you went to Howard. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to go to medical school? Um, I've always had that idea. Um, but it wasn't really solidified until after um, undergrad. So I actually took two years off. I'd worked as a researcher in New Jersey uh, for people living with disabilities, particularly those who suffered a traumatic brain injury and other types of brain injuries. And so it wasn't until there where I realized that, you know, while I enjoyed research, I really enjoyed the clinical aspect. And so I decided to go to medical school. Great. And uh, so what did, what did you do with the, patients um, with traumatic brain injuries? What kind of research was it? Uh, So there was a number of clinical trials that I was responsible for. So um, as a clinical research assistant, I wasn't the one who was necessarily writing the grants. Um, I essentially was running the studies. And so uh, clinical trials, including, you know, TBI patients with sleep disorders, uh, you know, there's a big one that's done nationally that essentially follows patients for up to 25 years. And so there's about, you know, over 180 data points that we collect. And so that, you know, drives other research and gives us a lot of other information for individuals living with, you know, any type of disability or brain injury. Um, And in the job, also doing some advocacy work in terms of helping to set up conferences for the patients, typically, and research participants who participate in our programs and come through the hospitals to just provide them with resources. Very interesting. So then you start medical school. Um, did you know going in you wanted to be a psychiatrist or um, did it kind of come later on? So it actually came later on. I had had the idea of going into psychology, like being a psychologist, you know, PhD or PsyD versus MD. Uh, but actually after I left that job, I thought I would go into rehabilitation medicine because I had just gotten so much experience and had really enjoyed it. Um, and so it wasn't actually until my third year, into the fourth year of medical school, where I finally made the decision to go the psychiatry route after doing my rotation. I just love being able to focus on the psychosocial issues uh, while still having that medical knowledge and, you know, kind of, you know, being, you know, that physician who can, you know, take into consideration everything when thinking about a patient. So, you know, that biopsychosocial formulation that you typically your psychiatrist talk about was something that was really interesting to me. And so I just knew that, you know, even with the most mundane aspect of psychiatry, I found myself being fulfilled. Yeah, that's some advice I was given that if you can imagine yourself doing 
field X on the most boring, boring day, <laughs> then you know it's mm-hmm. for you. So that kind of sounds like what you're describing. Um, so you're finishing your first year of, of residency now? Yeah, actually, we're now PGY2s are, you know, incoming PGY1s have gotten started. So now I'm a second year. Well, congratulations. <laughs> um, so what has residency been like? What, what services have you enjoyed the most? Uh, well, residency, uh, I guess in terms of the typical day, it can vary depending on what rotation or what service that you're uh, on at the moment. Um, intern year was very interesting because for psychiatry residencies across the U.S., typically you spend half the year uh, doing psychiatry-related rotations and the other year doing medicine, internal medicine and neurology um, services. And so it can really fluctuate uh, from day to day. Um, but, you know, honestly, it, it may sound cliche, but the best part is really just interacting with patients, um, mm-hmm. particularly at Cambridge Hospital. Uh, we have a highly um, underserved population, uh, low socioeconomic status, and those who are immigrants. And so I just love the multicultural feel of the patients and just being able to interact with them and, you know, really advocate for them as much as I can as a resident. Are there any stories from your intern year that really stick out to you? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stories. What, what type of stories are you? Uh, one, one where you advocated for a patient or, you know, something along those lines. Uh, well, I think, you know, advocacy is, is it has different forms. Uh, typically for me in my advocacy, it's usually in terms of thinking of social determinants of health or, you know, even sometimes social determinants of equity. Uh, so really, you know, my specific goal is that when I'm on a team and, you know, I'm speaking with like my attendings, the social workers and everything else that I really encourage them to think of the patient as a whole. Uh, You know, when we're talking about uh, disposition of patients, where they're going to go, really taking into consideration costs when we're thinking of treatment plans. And, you know, I'm challenged in that way as well to think in that uh, in that manner. So really just advocating for, you know, some of these patients, you know, particularly, you know, those of color who may not have, you know, resources that, you know, people assume that many other people have. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting um, because one of the things that I, I think about sometimes is that how do, you, how do you help someone when so many of the outside external factors are working against them, right? So I wonder how you kind of deal with that element, especially when talking about social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it can be a little bit difficult. And, you know, that's where medicine becomes really interdisciplinary. So working a lot with your social workers, uh, they, you know, particularly at CHA, they're, they are phenomenal in terms of what they can do in terms of, you know, even helping patients get home with uh, vouchers to get a taxi cab. Uh, trying to find for any of those who have, you know, any sort of addiction programs that they can possibly reach out to. Um, And, you know, just finding ways that we can work with patients to even like, uh, you know, find ways to afford their medications. So really just working with pharmacists, like all the different healthcare professionals in the hospital and really trying to educate your patients um, in terms of what options they do have uh, has really been probably my form of advocacy in that sense. Mm-hmm. So do you consider yourself an activist in a sense by any means? I, you know, I, I kind of go between calling myself an activist and, you know, just being an advocate. I mean, there are different forms to be active in the community. Uh, so, you know, 
I do participate in protests and things like that, but um, I also try to see, you know, when possible, how I can get involved in the community. Uh, I'm still working on that as I'm relatively new to the Massachusetts area. So uh, I I like to call myself more of a patient advocate uh, than an activist, but I'm definitely active as much as I can be in the community. So you just said that you've gone to protests and stuff. What's the most recent protest that you attended? Uh, well, for me, you know, particularly in these times where we're, we're talking about racial injustice in the country, uh, gone to a couple of the protests in Boston, um, you know, for the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, those talking about defunding uh, police, uh, and even, you know, getting involved in some of the vigils in terms of, you know, this being Pride Month for, you know, ensuring that we also remember uh, Trans Lives Matter, uh, many different things going on. So um, I, I really try to get involved and, you know, to show uh, support and, you know, kind of raise awareness to many of these issues going on, even though these issues have been going on for, you know, many, many years. Mm-hmm. And I would assume the answer is yes, because you do participate. But what do you, what do you feel like the doctor's role is as an advocate, as an activist? Sometimes, you know, there's people who push back and say, Physicians should just worry about the medicine, stay in your lane. But Mm -hmm. it does seem to be changing. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I think, you know, that depends on, you know, what your morals, what your, you know, philosophy is. I I think, you know, any type of injustice is a physician's role, particularly when we talk about racism uh, and understanding how structurally it causes health inequities and disparities in the community. Um, So I tell people that, you know, Getting active in your community is definitely part of your role if you intend to be a you know community physician or any type of provider, honestly. Um, and you know, I, I have a big issue when people say that because many times, you know, they tell physicians that you know only focus on treating the patient, and then even that goes into things like insurance and things like that. Uh, we're creating a culture where physicians aren't being you know educated in that form, and you know, you have these people who are creating these policies who aren't interacting with patients and have no experience in that. So physicians play many roles and, you know, if you get into medical school, you're typically a pretty smart person. You can learn how to navigate these different fields too. So I definitely think that physicians have more than one role. Mm-hmm. I, I like to think so as well. And that's kind of the thesis behind this podcast is that there are many issues outside of just medicine that physicians should be interested in. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, where I'm trying to <laughs> take this. Um, I want to get into a little bit more about, about racial injustice, but I want to start with you specifically. You are a, a black psychiatrist. Um, you know, I think if you look at the numbers, there's not a lot. And I'm wondering what that experience has been like for you, not just, you know, being a psychiatrist, but being a black psychiatrist, especially serving, um, you know, black patients and other uh, patients of different minorities? Uh, Well, you know, the experience is is interesting, I think, because I I can relate with a lot of my patients uh, and, you know, just with a lot of people overall in terms of what we're seeing. Um, You know, there aren't that many of us. And so when we think of like the typical uh, assessment of a patient, you know, I try to go a little bit deeper in terms of thinking how, you know, systemic oppression can play a role, uh, whether that has to do with access or um, opportunities or, you know, even, you know, someone coming from a different country. Uh, There are many factors that 
play a role. And, you know, I, because I do hold different identities, for me, I think it allows me to connect with patients on a certain level uh, that builds trust, builds alliance, uh, and can really help, you know, kind of increase the quality of care. Mm-hmm. Do you feel any, like, extra pressure? Just, you know, trying to balance your identity? Uh, you know, I think coming in at first, I did. Because, um, you know, out of all the physician trainees uh, in our hospital, um, I think in terms of Black men, I'm one in four or five. So, you know, there kind of comes an imposter syndrome that can, you know, take place, particularly when, you know, you're first starting residency and you're first learning how to be a doctor. Um, you know, you're obviously going to make mistakes and you also are very cognizant of how you might be perceived. But there's also that added layer of, oh, are people perceiving me? Um, if, you know, I make a mistake, is this because they see color? Is it because they see skill? Or is this a combination of both? Um, but I think that you know, I've grown into, uh, you know, I'm growing more into my physicianhood. Um, and I'm actually very grateful. I went to uh, Howard University College of Medicine because I, I really didn't have to uh, experience many uh, microaggressions in terms of my education. And I could really focus and hone in on my clinical skills that I'm confident in them. Um, and I know, you know, across the country, not many people um, have had that same experience. While they're still fantastic physicians, you know, the path to getting there in medical school was uh, in some ways a lot more difficult. Yeah, um, let's get into that, actually. Um, so recently on Twitter, there's been this hashtag going around called um, hashtag Black in the Ivory. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be able to explain what that means. Yeah, so, you know, that hashtag is, it's actually a great uh, thread to read. I, I encourage everyone to go see it. Uh, but basically, it is going over accounts of many micro and macro aggressions that people, uh, particularly Black people, have faced in uh, different settings in academia, not only limited to medical school, but different forms of graduate school, even college, and, you know, even certain people who are well into their professions. So, uh, you know, I've been following a lot of the, uh, the medical school ones and, you know, the physicians at some of these big academic institutions. And it's, it's kind of baffling sometimes, you know, just some of the things that people have the audacity to say to someone, uh, you know, just based off of their skin. And so, um, you know, being black in the ivory, we think of this ivory tower as this magnificent thing and that this magnificent institution. uh, But there are so many injustices and, you know, so many vile things going on that many people don't even realize. Mm -hmm. When did you first experience your black in the ivory moments? Oh, wow. I mean... (laughs) Oh, that's difficult to say when the first one was. Um, I would say, you know, for me, and I, I, I didn't think about this, there, there was this one time, I'll just start with undergrad. Uh, I, I just met this person. Um, I was telling them, you know, a little bit about myself. Uh, and the first question they asked me was, oh, so are you here on like an athletic scholarship or something like that? Yeah. And, you know, granted, I wasn't an athlete in high school, but you know, I was in college for absolutely nothing related to athletics. So to me, it was interesting why this person just assumed that, you know, I would be here, you know, for something that had to do with sports and not academics. Mm-hmm. And how did you process that? Honestly, I don't think I did at the time when I was an undergrad. It was kind of just like, you know, one of those microaggressions that occurs and you're kind of just 
kind of stunned a little bit and you know you explain that no you're not here for sports and then you kind of move on and that's typically how it can go sometimes sometimes you don't even have the time to process it it kind of just occurs to you you're like a little bit annoyed and baffled by it but you just move on so like i, you know, like I mentioned earlier this has been going around twitter uh mainly uh, quite a, quite a bit why do you think it's so important that that these stories are told I think it it brings awareness to, you know, this idea of being anti-racist. You know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, they go to these institutions, they don't see overt signs of racism that are personally personally mediated. Um, And they think that, you know, their institution is free or like uh, is exonerated from participating in any type of racist uh, oppression to a lot of their employees, staff and students. Um, I think it's really important for people to understand that, you know, People go through this every day, and though some people may be functioning fine in their job or their career, it actually plays a you know a psychological toll. Um, and you know, you really don't we you know people we shouldn't be tolerating the intolerable anymore. Um, and so, I think it's important for people to get perspective to see how uh, how they may participate in you know any type of racist or any type of injustice, but also to see how structurally the system works and how many times these practices and, you know, behaviors are repeated and they go with impunity. Mm -hmm. Have you been thinking about any changes that you would like to see um, in academia as far as it comes to dealing with the racial injustices in this sphere? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it a lot, actually. You know, there are so many different ideas that I've been bouncing around. I mean, when I think of medical school, for one, I mean, the first thing I think of is, you know, these, like, important tests that we talk about, the steps. Um, And many times, you know, I think uh, that's one of the things medical students, uh, even residents, because we take step three, are hyper-focused on sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that just incorporating any type of anti-racist curricula or even talking about disparities, um, and, you know, kind of bringing up scenarios that would be deemed as a microaggression just to get students in that mentality of thinking about it and just understanding the history of it would be one form. Um, you know, a lot of people have been, you know, having discussion about, you know, these trainings. I think trainings are really important because even me and speaking to some of the Harvard faculty and some of the HMS students, uh, a lot of people don't know how to navigate these situations if they are bystander, uh, and they don't have necessarily the the language to try and navigate and kind of be an ally. Uh, so I think trainings are also essential in terms of identifying racist behavior and how to respond to it and understanding the uh, correct avenues and chains in terms of reporting this uh, so that, you know, some type of reconciliation and reparation can happen. And so those are just two of the main things that I think about now. It's you know, change the education in terms of actually having, you know, that curricula set in. Um, and attached to that is hiring more faculty uh, from diverse backgrounds, particularly those who are Black, uh, so that you aren't having people who have no experience teaching these. Um, and also, you know, just incorporating some type of training starting early on, because I truly believe if you don't start, you know, early on in your education or in your career, when you're further down the line, I think it becomes a little bit harder to exercise and be comfortable with addressing it. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, especially when you mentioned STEP, is the, um, especially in uh, medical education, we were taught a lot of buzzwords. Um, mm-hmm. And that I, I don't have any uh, research off the top of my head, but it wouldn't be hard to imagine that, you know, when you're taught that 
a young African-American female with shortness of breath probably has sarcoidosis, right? (laughs) Well, that means that you're probably going to miss another diagnosis or you could miss another diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I definitely, I don't know, that definitely hit a big point for me there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I think about medical school, it's so funny. Um, Particularly, I think of like pediatrics, uh, you know, to this day, you know, I have never seen um, an Asian child with Kawasaki's disease. And when I was first going into uh, my peds rotation in medical school, you know, I missed Kawasaki so many times because I was like, oh, well, you know, this is just how we're taught. And that's what, like the first thing to look for. Um, so when you talk about this race-based medicine, it, it's creating these illness groups, which can be helpful at certain times. But really, are we also teaching, you know, our future physicians and healthcare workers to uh, really broaden their differential and, you know, think of a patient as, you know, a patient, not as part of some, like, script that you can recognize from, like, hours of studying? Right. I want to circle back a little bit um, to mental health and psychiatry, because um, I know that Black mental health is a, is a passion of yours. Um, it's in your Twitter bio, so it would be <laughs> nice not to ask you about it. <laughs> Um, why, why is it important to have a specific focus on Black mental health? What are the unique challenges um, in, in Black mental health that are, um, I don't know, that may be different? I, and we kind of touched on it earlier, um, but I'm wondering if you had any additional thoughts. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, I'm forgetting, like, the specific statistics, but, you know, for, you know, when talk about, like, Black adults, um, you know, the statistics show that, you know, Black adults are less likely to seek psychotherapy or any type of psychopharmacological interventions or receive any type of help compared to other racial groups, uh, even though there may be a, a higher likelihood of them experiencing um, in many forms psychological or mental illness. Um, I think that compounded with the fact that there are not that many black therapists in the United States uh, also serves as a barrier uh, when we talk about, you know, creating an alliance and actually, you know, receiving proper care. I talk about it because I think, you know, one, we need more black therapists and particularly more psychiatrists, uh, because many times, you know, there was a report that, you know, for those uh, for black people who have uh, sought any type of psychotherapy, they've experienced some type of microaggression and at certain times also received an improper diagnosis. So I, I'm really passionate about it because, I, you know, they're, particularly in these times now where we're being inundated with all this information and it's very traumatic, uh, you're going to see a, a higher need for uh, mental health in the black community. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm really passionate in terms of increasing access and finding ways to be innovative about, you know, um, ex, you know, expanding access for everyone. Yeah. I think your point about um, having more black therapists is especially true because, you know, this is, you know, therapy is a very, you establish a very personal relationship with who you're working with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can imagine that it's, if you're able to identify with the person you're working with in some way, it can improve outcomes. And right. Right. I don't Yeah, and I say, you know, therapists, and, you know, I'll hone in on psychiatry specifically, uh, because I guess out of, like, the, in terms of mental health, you know, care, uh, you know, psychiatrists are still medical doctors, and so for a lot of these mood disorders, uh, you know, any type, actually any type of psychiatric presentation, we also had to consider other conditions that 
might be relevant in terms of, you know, having a different differential diagnosis and seeing how that can address the mood. Uh, so, you know, just like I say, we need more black men in medicine. We also need uh, more black psychiatrists because, uh, you know, depression can be due to hypothyroidism, medications, you know, psychosis can be due to uh, a different number of things. And so being able to hold all, all those factors in place is really important. And I think, you know, a lot of psychiatrists do do therapy, but some don't. But I think both pieces are very essential to providing excellent mental health care. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Felix, I have one last question for you, um, because with everything going on, um, with the racial injustice uh, conversations and the protests and, and just being a resident, how do you, how do you practice self-care? Oh, yeah. So for me, uh, self-care takes uh, different forms. So I consider myself to be a spiritual person. So uh, prayer and meditation is very important for me. Taking time to disconnect uh, from computers, from screens is, is very vital just because, you know, again, we're in times where we're getting, you know, information at a rate that I think is faster than many of us can process sometimes. Uh, and so I really do like to take uh, a moment to be a little bit mindful of that. Um, the second thing I like to do is just remain active. So unfortunately, because the gyms are closed, I can't go to the gym. But, you know, I've taken back up a yoga practice to really connect with my body, you know, kind of get my heart rate up and sweat and uh, really not let myself get stuff, uh, gain some of the weight <laughs> associated with being, you know, home for the most part, if not if, if I'm not in the hospital. Great. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on. I thought we had a really nice conversation and I learned a lot. So thank you again. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Vital Discussions. I hope you have a great rest of your week.